Here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. It is uh, 14 Sundays after Trinity. Bless the Lord my soul, and do not forget his benefits. Sorry, young man. I bet, yeah, I know, that you'll be great. Turn that off. Uh, Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, who richly and fully blesses us with all good things and leads us through each day, make us acknowledge this with our whole heart. And ever remain grateful that we praise and thank you for your loving kindness and mercy. Here and forevermore. Amen. Amen. All right, welcome back. Here we go. It is um, unofficially the feast day of St. Matthew, so the, the, whatever you put in the basket goes to... Look at you, overachievers. If you had a deck of cards, this could turn into a <laughs> poker tournament. St. <laughs> Matthew Soup Kitchen, okay? So we'll take care of them. Uh, questions about anything? You need to know anything you want to know? Curious about? All right. Um, I always seem to want to talk to you about the same thing, so I have to disguise it in different ways so you won't catch on. I only have one song and I keep singing it, which is how weird the church is. But in a world that's even weirder, it seems as if the church should be able to get some traction. It'll need to do that under the radar, however, because everything looks so different. So right at point number one, again with my annual pledge to actually follow the outline. Here we go. You shouldn't be hard on backsliders. This is the church, right? People make mistakes again and again. We live in a world of competing kingdoms. Turn on your television. Candidates, tribes, borders, weapons, promises, propaganda, demonstrations, dirty tricks, fake news, deep fakes. All of these you should see as attempts to establish power. Already the irony strikes me. I always tell young guys who are so eager to um, exalt the Missouri Senate and over everything else and then exalt themselves over other Missouri Senate people that um, you always have to remember that if you win, the prize is the Missouri Senate. Uh, In the same way, I mean, people should at least reflect for a moment uh, that if you want to conquer the world, the prize is the world. It doesn't have such a great track record. But nevertheless, people um, carry on. Now, before you misunderstand me, you shouldn't hear me saying that all power is bad power. Power is necessary at times to establish order, especially among the merciless or the lawless. The other side is St. Augustine who said, love God and do whatever you want. And so that, of course, is the key to the whole thing, which is to learn to love other people uh, as yourself and then to love God too. But this makes Jesus and the church exceedingly weird. Um, Everybody in the world wants power. They want to exalt themselves. They want to control. They want their way. And they disadvantage other people in order to get it. Even the best tech experiments over the last 10 or 15 years have not been able to resist the urge of taking advantage of other people for money. I'm happy to hear exceptions. It would, it would warm my heart. So the world engages in power. And then Jesus sounds a bit like that, too. The very first thing that Jesus says is repent 
because the kingdom of heaven is here or the kingdom of God is here. And for a moment, it sounds as if Jesus is just another player among all the players. And certainly that's how he was seen by both the Jews and the Romans. And that's why he was so tragically misunderstood. Our problem is that we already think we know what the kingdom of God is. And we normally fill it up with all our assumptions and biases and predispositions. And then it turns out just like everything else. So what I'm begging you to do is to listen. We have heard these stories about the kingdom of God so many times. This is right at the bottom of the page. That we think they're entertaining and agreeable and simple and clear. Except that they're not. I'm turning the page for you. In fact, Jesus' stories are often strange and disturbing and bizarre, and also wonderful and intriguing and perplexing. This is the strangest thing, that Jesus does not intend to be just one voice among the others. There is a particularity in Jesus. There is a specificity in Jesus. There is a one and onlyness in Jesus, which the church has always propounded. So Jesus does, in fact, want to be a point number one. But here's the hard part. He refuses to establish that number oneness by way of power. Everything about Jesus is an alternative to the way of the world. He is singular and particular. And this is what makes the church the church. And if the church becomes anything else, it should just cash it in and become the Lions Club or one political party or another. Not that there's anything wrong with it, those, right? Not that there's anything wrong with it. Yeah. That's, you're, you sort yourselves out by what you laugh at, you Seinfeld fans. It also tells you that I'm old and you know, I don't know any references in the last 10 years. So um, here's the thing. What I'm asking you to do is start by presuming you don't know anything. What I'm asking you to do is actually listen. The last 100 years in academia can be defined in a simple sentence, which is every text has become pretext. So in the old days, you studied the great text, or you listened carefully, or you read thoroughly and deeply. And the point of that was to learn what other people thought. A text was a text was a text. For the last century in academics, all focus has been on hermeneutics. One of the downsides of that, it's good to know why you think what you think, but one of the downsides of that is that every text has now become a pretext. And everything is about me, right? So listening starts with what Jesus has to say rather than what we are ready to hear. Let Jesus be a text rather than a pretext. That is, allow him the dignity of being a real human being. This is the thing that is so missed in our era right now. Everything is about human dignity, and everybody is free to self-define, except anybody else but me. Right? Because we no longer listen. 
We only ever talk about ourselves and our own interests. Sometimes we clump with people of similar interests, but at bottom, if you listen hard enough, people are only talking about themselves. And this is why there's a great rupture of community in the world, and this is why people are more anxious than they've ever been. This is why the world has turned hateful and tribal. This is why we no longer prize virtue, but instead we prize our kind. And if you read the history of the world, this is how the world blows apart. Because it has the inability to see what is common in human beings. What we need to do is listen well and respect everyone, but at the end of the day, always virtue over tribe. Always virtue over tribe, and especially divine virtue. So this great line from Henry Nouwen, listening is spiritual hospitality. So let's assume, and this is what I'm trying to get you to do, let's assume that the kingdom of God is a radical mystery which we cannot discover ourselves. And let's presume that the only way we'll ever know it is if it's revealed in Jesus the Christ. Let's presume that Jesus is what he says he is, the eternal word who reveals himself in words. In fact, he reveals himself in one of the best ways anybody can reveal themselves. He tells stories. But he tells stories that are so strange, even though you're used to them, you should think about them in a different way. And finally, toward the end of this page, let's take Jesus seriously when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my disciples would fight. You remember this is how it ended. Um, People sort of said, how can you be a king if nobody fights for you? Jesus is like, because you don't understand what a kingdom is. If you understood what kingdom was, then you'd understand what kind of king I am. I'm not like everybody else. Okay? And finally, clear at the bottom, especially for pastors, but for you too, we should remember that we don't run this operation. We are unworthy servants. We're nothing but given to. We live by divine gifts. So, if we could just listen with unmade-up minds, that would be good for us. If not, we'll miss it. You know, the old thing. I've said this a zillion times. The penalty for not listening is to remain the way you are. You can blissfully go through life and not listen to anybody, but the sum total of your thought and experience is you, which, frankly, you know, it's like writing a doctoral dissertation. If you do all the research yourself, you have a fool helping you. So get some help. Find some friends. Listen to other people. And as you read, try not to protect yourself. Deep down, one of the reasons we don't listen is because um, we want to protect ourselves. Because occasionally this would mean changing things up. It would mean living in a different way, doing stupid stuff like you know, giving 10% to the church and a couple of points to people whom you don't even know. Right? To feed people you don't even know is a strange act. Every tribe feeds their own. But the weird thing about the Christians, Acts 2, is that they fed and helped people who they did not know. They gathered up bodies from alongside the road and buried them, even when they didn't know the people who died, because of the dignity of those people. 
They started the first schools and the first hospitals for women and for children as well, even when these people were not of their own tribe because of the dignity of all human beings. Part of the dignity is to listen, and more so for Jesus' word made flesh. So if you do that, you'll meet this God who is utterly ungodly. This is the strange thing for us. We have this notion of who God should be. We invoke that notion, uh, especially when we get in trouble in a time of a disaster, a natural disaster, or a plane crash, or um, those sorts of things. We have these presuppositions of what God should do and who he should be. We sort of tell God, without listening, what's next. But if you listen to the scriptures, you'll find a God who is utterly ungodly because he does not work by power and he works by death instead of life. So the title for the year, love and death, and only then life. It's completely counterintuitive. Right? So here's God who erases our sins and spares his enemies, who loves those who hate him, who takes our beating for us, and teaches us to live by dying, and then offers us a life beyond death. It's an otherworldly sort of thing. So anyway, I'm only trying to break your defenses now. I'm asking that you would come with a pure heart, and that you would not use Jesus as a pretext for what you already know or what you presume. But if you would just listen to what Jesus says. At the end of the day, if you want to reject him, feel free and take the consequences. Hell is when God lets you have your way forever. Part of your human dignity is your freedom. So may you, you may choose for or against things. And... You know, the big surprise for human beings is that you don't live at the end and then exhale and die. You live forever. You're like a ray. You have a point, but you live forever, right? And you're responsible not just for your now, but your forever. And listening helps you to find that. And everybody, you know, pays your money and takes your choice. We, we talk so much about freedom, and we have no idea what it is that we're talking about. We have no idea the extent to which, that which this will push us and the extent to which God actually lets us be free in respect for us, right? Because God listens to us. So um, we'll tell stories this year, but I hope with a pure heart and that we'll use it as uh, a reason for change. You okay? That's as philosophical as it'll be. Now, the rest will be fun, but you have to get that out of the way because... Listening is a lost skill. If you don't believe me, watch the news tonight. Pick any channel, right? (laughs) Nobody is listening to anybody. If you only had one story, this would be the story. If the Bible was reduced to one story, if you had this story, the parable of the lost son, so, of course, the prodigal son, because he spends lavishly, But it's better uh, maybe to talk about the lost son or even about the lost sons because it turns out the older boy is lost too. But it comes right after the story of the lost coin and the lost sheep and then the lost son. If you only had this story, you'd have all you'd need to know about the kingdom of God. 
in the same way that, that great story about the woman caught in adultery. If you only had that story, you'd have all you need, where Jesus says to her, who condemns you? All the village has gone home. Who condemns you? Jesus is with her. He doesn't condemn her. Who condemns you? And this kind of hopeful question, uh, no one, Lord? Jesus is like, good answer. Go home. And the famous last words, uh, go and sin no more, but is more fun translated as, hey, you're free not to sin anymore. You're free. Go out some fun. Live the way you were always meant to be. So if you have a Bible, maybe you don't. I didn't print it out. We didn't hand them out. We're a little bit convoluted. We got a new Vic. We probably didn't tell him. All right, then oral tradition. You'll have to listen to me. All right? So get in your jammies. Here we go. Uh, Luke 15. Uh, he's told that Jesus has just told the parable. So now here's the thing. You've got to have a little context. Jesus went to dinner, and people didn't like the guest list. You remember there were tax collectors and sinners, those other kind of people. Their skin's a different color. They don't look like us. They think funny. They aren't very good uh, during the daylight hours, and at night they're even worse. The Pharisees and the teachers muttered to themselves, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man is too soft. If this man would exercise just a bit more discretion, and if he put some power behind that, if we could close the doors and just get the right people in here, if we could just be good to good people and let the bad people kind of fend for themselves, this would be uh, a lot better place. I've told you often the story of the Villa Park Soldiers and Sailors Club, right? So our friend Mario used to play poker on Friday nights. Kirby, what was the name of that town? Now it's outside Trenton, though, this little Italian con. He used to play poker. He says, I don't know how much longer I'll get to play poker there. I'm like, he said, but the red light's on. There's a poker game. We were there for dinner. The red light was on. I'm like, I said, how much longer? I said, you go every week? He said, yeah, I don't know how much longer I'll be able to go. I said, why is it? He said, they're down to two members. <laughs> I said, why, why do they only have two members? He said, the two guys who are left can't find any new people who meet their standards. <laughs> The church is like that, right? <laughs> when we're down to two members, you know, and I think maybe you're not good enough to be here. Yeah. So that's the story right here. So Jesus said, verse 11, so this is Luke, if you have a Bible, Luke 15, 11, if you want to look it up on your phone, but not use my data plan, you can do that. Um, Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. That's part's easy. The younger one said to his father, drop dead. Now that's my translation, but here you go. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. Um, this is unheard of. I was at a, the reason I wasn't in the first service, I had a nephew married, we were late. I have a Middle Eastern uncle, and I'm always struck even now, after all these years, how he still has remnants of Middle Eastern culture about him when I talk to him. You have to hear this story in the midst of Middle Eastern culture. You have to hear it in the midst of a community. 
You have to hear it in the midst of a people where everybody is for everybody else. And honor and shame are what drive the tribe. So this man comes to his father and says to him, give me my inheritance. Two things you find out about him. One, he's the younger son. And that is uh, often the younger son didn't get anything. So he, first he's, uh, this is very brash. But second, in these Middle Eastern communities, the, like here, the will only takes effect after the old man dies. This is unheard of, right? This is a violation of every honor. He shames his father and says to him, you're no father at all, drop dead. You're dead to me. That's, how, that's, that's what this is. He says to himself, and you have to remember in the Middle East, everybody lives together. This guy obviously has means, he has money, he's got enough that he can divide the property and still live. But in the Middle East, people live together. Everybody knows everybody else's business. You people who have been to the Holy Land or if you've been around the Middle East at all, you know that it's communal society. And this insult would have traveled, right? So he says to him, drop dead. This is point number seven. This is un impossible. And he's not only shaming his dad, he's actually shaming the entire community. And the proper response to this should be power. His dad should take him out behind the dumpster and throw him a beaten. That's what should happen. And there'd be a lot of people who would be very willing to help, right? But remarkably, the old man does it. He drops dead. Listen to this. There was a young man who said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property. So, verse, uh, the rest of this verse, so the father divided the property between them, part to the older son, part to the younger son. He left nothing for himself. He actually drops dead. This is, this is a remarkable thing, almost impossible. So if you'd heard this for the first time, one of the best books for this is a guy named Kenneth Bailey. Uh, he did a doctoral dissertation at St. Louis when St. Louis was the best place in the world 40 years ago to get a PhD. It was Harvard and Yale and St. Louis. Those were the three places. And he did a doctoral dissertation. His doctoral dis dissertation was he took these stories and he sat down with Bedouin, with people in the Middle East. He'd go into little villages he grew up in the Middle East, so he was conversant, fluent. And he would say, I want to tell you a story. And then he would read people who had never heard the story before. He would read it to them and say, what does this mean? Right? At this point, two verses in, there's outrage. I mean, this is like some Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners you've had at your family. Right? <laughs> So, uh, but the old man, he um, refuses to exercise power. In fact, he lets himself be killed. He has this unnatural otherworldly love. So I put it to you this way, a love so strong from the father that he lets his own son reject him. Right? Which, of course, already you should smell love. Because you can't force love. You can't make people love you. You can make people obey you as long as you're bigger or more powerful than they. But you can't make people love you. In fact, if you try to make people love you, you'll often make them hate you. And they will take leave of you as soon as they can. 
So this father lets himself um, be rejected, right? Not long after this, the young son got together all he had. And if you kind of think about this, uh, he probably had a bit of a fire sale, so he took 10 cents on the dollar. He would have offended his father. He would have offended everybody in the village. He would have turned his back on the notion that land was everything in the Middle East, that land is passed down from generation to generation to generation. You never sell the land. You never sell the land. It stays in the family. And also, there's probably nobody in the village who will buy the land, certainly not at full price. So sort of presume that he sells this land 10 cents on the dollar and he gets out of town. Not long after that, very quickly, he sold everything, so he he liquidates everything. The younger son then got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth. You've seen this story a thousand times, right? So he gets this immediate gratification of cash and luxury and power and friends until he doesn't. And he got that by way of contempt, by way of force, by abandoning everything he'd ever had. And this is the definition of being lost. So he's lost God. He's a Jew. He's part of the religious establishment, but that's gone. He's lost his community. Everybody in the village hates him. And he's lost his family. His older brother disdains him, and his father is dead to him. And that's all he's doing. It's hard for us to understand what this actually means. But then this kind of interesting and more beautiful thing. Not long after that, the young son got together all that he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need, and nobody knew him. So he went, and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country. He's a Jew among Gentiles. He's far away. He's away from home. Who sent him into the fields to feed pigs, right? This is just an impossibility. Pigs are unclean animals. If he touches pigs, he becomes unclean. He used to be a landowner. Now he's less than a slave barely surviving. He has no community to back him up when things go bad in the middle of a famine. So everything he once had was over. Everything is lost. Everything's been wasted. He's got nothing. And he becomes vulnerable. Right? A man who was once so powerful now lives at the whim of people who will feed him garbage. And no one gave him anything, right? He used to live at a time where he lived by gifts. He used to have a life where he lived by gifts. And now he lives by a life in which there is no gifts. Now it starts to get interesting. When he came to his senses, so he's still got something about him, but he's a bit of a zombie boy here, he said... How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's fabulous. That's the fabulous part. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. Right? You're going to, if you stay for church, about eight minutes, well, let's see, we have a baptism today. So you'll have to drop your sins in the water along with that little pagan Schlesselman kid. Um, Geez, the Schlesselmans. 
a bunch of damn sinners. Have you ever met them? <laughs> Every time they bring a kid here, well, it's darkness and loss. But nine minutes in, maybe ten, you'll smell something good. Stick around, okay? So uh, they're not here, are they? Oh, hey, welcome back. <laughs> Thought you were still in Tennessee. Good to see you. All right, so he came to a census. He said, you know, how many of my father's hired men have plenty to eat? It's to spare. I'll go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Hey, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me your hired man. There's a hundred things that are wrong with this, right? There's a hundred things that are wrong with this. Starting with, he's a son. You know, for you philosophy majors, ontologically, he's a son. That is by creation. He was born a son, and he'll always be a son. He has two options. He'll be a lost son or a found son. But he can't become a servant. He's a son. He's got the blood that courses in his veins. You, by the way, should fast forward to, you know, people who have been gone for five or six years, and they walk in the door, but they've been baptized here. Those are your people, right? They may not have done a very good job, but those are our people. Our people. So he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs had. He comes to his senses and he says, I've sinned against heaven and earth against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired hands. So he got up and he went to his father. Right? But the problem is, it's not a very good confession. And, you know, I've said this to you a thousand times, but we should probably say it to ourselves every day. Um, confession is without excuses. There are no excuses you can make for your sins. There's no excuse, right? You all have been baptized. Jesus has talked sweetly to you. You've lived by the gifts that God gives. And when you veer from that, when you get lost, there's, there's sort of no excuse. You, you knew better. You were a son. Right? You lived as part of the family. You had a community. So um, there won't be any kneeling down. I'm so unfortunate we don't have an absolution for you to go to right after this. But next time you kneel down and you say, by nature I'm sinful and unclean, by thought, word, and deed, by what I've done, by what I haven't done. Yeah, that's the ticket. There's no place in there where you say, I had a pretty good excuse for guy. <laughs> this is great. At this wedding last night, there were, you know how kids kind of melt down at a wedding? So my brother's wife has, she's one of 15 children, okay? When they took the family picture, there were 123 people in the family picture, okay? What you need to know is this means a lot of boys under the age of 10 punching each other in the nose. <laughs> It's a beautiful thing. It's human nature on display. And, of course, the longer it goes, the more crispy they get, right? At some point, there'll be stitches. So, um, you know, that's us, right? There's no kind of no excuse for this. That's who we are. So he goes home to his father. And now this is the sweetest thing. So he comes to his senses. He said, I'll go home. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, as in his father was watching for him. Now, you have to remember, in the Middle East, if you're rich, if you have property, you don't build a big estate out here on a hill all by yourself and live up here because people don't do that in our tribe. We live together. We're community. 
So even if he was the richest guy in town, there's going to be people all around. It's normally built something like this. And there's going to be people all around. And um, you can imagine this father watching, right? There's one road into town, like Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And um, there's actually two now. Okay, so just... So let's, you know, and he's watching, and, and one day, you know, he sees this broken son of his, still a son, coming up the road, right? Coming to his senses, as the text says. And the father <clears throat> runs to him. Two things. In the Middle East, old men do not run. Because you're the old man and you're in charge. It's a little like my family. I don't have to run everywhere. I just walk in and everything is done for me. <laughs> it's beautiful. My wife and children say, Father, what is it that you... <laughs> what pleases you now? Do you need a second remote in case the batteries wear down? <laughs> Old men don't run, number one. And number two, and this is probably more important, when an old man runs, he humiliates himself. Now, you've got to set the story, right? All these people who lived here and here and over here and up here, and even the brother who lived there, they think this guy is an idiot. They hate this guy. Right? And they'd still like to give him a good beating. The father sees him. He was humiliated the first time when the son said to him, drop dead. Now he's humiliated again by the same, you know, tax collectors and sinners with whom Jesus ate. So for them, the story is going from bad to worse. We've already seen this before. We've seen the deep humiliation of this father. And he runs to the boy. Old men don't run. When old men run, they humiliate themselves. He runs to the boy while he was still a long way off as he was filled with misericordia. His heart was breaking. He runs to his son, throws his arms around him, and he kisses him. It's this amazing... Sort of what you should see is Jesus coming to find you, right? And the proper greeting for a really bad sinner is not a punch in the nose. It's a kiss on the cheek. So I, you know, my Middle Eastern uncle, you know, he, he always throws me because he kisses me, right? Um, I beat him to the punch when I left. But, you know, the first time, I know sometimes... You know, when I, <laughs> Arthur just showed up here one day and he gave me a big kiss. And I won't name you, but you looked at me like. <laughs> I kiss him and I kiss Pete Ladick, and that's it. <laughs> so um, the, he comes and he kisses him. And what he's doing as he humiliates himself, he's now teaching the village how we treat sinners and tax collectors. He's telling the village publicly 
This is what we do. He's telling his servants. He's telling his next door neighbors. He's even telling the older son. He's telling everybody, this is what we do. You should be able to connect the dots here and say, this is what the church does. The church does not say we're better than all these other people and we wish they would stay away. We only deal with good people here. And if you could just clean yourselves up, maybe we could find a place for you, but it should take a guy like you a really long time. No. The church welcomes tax collectors and sinners. You know, as Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost. And then you have this beautiful thing of what happens. The boy starts to make excuses, right? He's got a speech planned. He's been practicing it all the way home. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, which is exactly right. He's no longer worthy to be called a son, right? Nobody's worthy to be called a son. But the father stops him. So this is, he basically lets him say, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, And then the father stops him, and he says, now he's already run to him and kissed him. The father says to his servants, now the servants are going to want to know, what do we do with this kid? Right? Because he humiliated everybody, and he's out of the family. How do we treat him? The father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, which would be the father's robe, and put it on him. And put a ring on his finger. This would be a signet ring probably. It would be the father's ring. And it would be perhaps even the ring by which he can sign a contract and do business. You can kind of extend this out. What that has that kind of symbolism and, and, um, and uh, authority, right? So he, kisses, he runs to him. He kisses him. He hugs him. He dresses him. He puts a ring on his finger. <laughs> and put sandals on his feet. This is the ultimate, um, this is what it means. You remember a few years ago when, was it Bush that somebody, a reporter in a news conference in, do you remember this? Bush, he threw a shoe at him, do you remember that? That is the ultimate indignity. I I know a story from um, some Middle Eastern guys who, there was a professor, a new professor, I think at university in Egypt. He didn't quite know what he was doing, and they were all in this dorm room. And one of his students slept late, and he took his shoe off and threw it against the wall, and it hit the wall to wake the guy up. A thousand students turned out to riot in the street. This is a true story. Because he had humiliated these people. The feet are kind of off limits, right? This is why you take off your sandals when you go in. They wash your feet. That's why if they don't wash your feet, you're not clean. That's why if you don't offer water to wash the feet, you've shamed somebody. So this is the ultimate. First, masters wear shoes, right? And second, servants put the shoes on master's feet. So he's basically saying to the entire community, he's back and nothing has changed which is exactly what happens to you in absolution. So you're going to go in there, you're going to kneel down, and um, God's going to look down and you say, you're a damn sinner. And then you're going to look up and say, yeah, I'm a damn sinner. And then the Lord's going to look down and say, I really love damn sinners. And you're going to be like, you do? (laughs) This is great. You really love damn sinners. And your relationship will flourish from there. This is exactly what's happening in this story. I didn't come to save the righteous, says Jesus. I came to seek and to save the lost.
Right, you've heard this a thousand times, right? So he says to his boy, um, you're mine. And the son's rejection of the father is completed with the, son's, with the father's rejection of himself. And the welcoming back of this boy. This quote from Capon, the father simply sees the corpse of a son coming down the road, and because raising dead sons to life and throwing fabulous parties for them is his favorite way of spending an afternoon, you should party more. Yeah, he proceeds straight to the hugs and the kitches, kisses and the resurrection. So, confession without excuses and forgiveness without conditions. Right? Because if you put conditions on your forgiveness, suddenly you've exerted power again when it should be mercy. It's all about love. You forgive everything. And you'll notice that he will quickly, and then we've got to go, but he, he doesn't say, you can be my son if, or okay, but you're going to have a curfew now, or your American Express card limit, it's coming down to $5,000. Don't get past it. He doesn't say any of that. He says, what does he say? Quick, the best robe. Put the ring on his finger, put the sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf, which means this is a party for everybody. No refrigeration, you kill the fatted calf. It's too much for just the boy and his brother and the father. It means it's a party for the entire village. We're all back together again. We're one, we're a community. We love each other. This is what we do. This is how we treat people who get lost. Here we go. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Now, the only story that is in Scripture death and resurrection. And friends, if you want to live, you've got to die. Right? My friend Norman Nagel is dying. Pray for him. So, if you want to live, you've got to die. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found and they began to celebrate so you do what the Father does. You do what the Heavenly Father does. Okay, that's all we can do. Um, we're going to come back and have some uh, words maybe next week about the older brother. How many of you got an older brother? Yeah, okay, we're going to talk about him next time. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time with that. But mostly, if you bump into any other s- sinners as you go this week, you might want to... Um, throw your arms around him, give him a big kiss on the lips, tell him it's from me and from the baby Jesus, and see what happens next. Report back. (laughs) Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Love you. Thanks for coming. Uh, See you next week.